Revolution. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublab. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Anne Magnuson, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Quarantine Tapes, co-presented by Onassis LA and DubLab. It's a real pleasure to have you in our studio. And I want to take us to a very important moment in your life, which is your first impressions of New York. Okay. If you could, you, you arrived at such a heated moment in the music world, in the music scene world, the people you got to know, whether it's Patti Smith or David Bowie. I know you even showed me a moment ago a David Bowie doll. But I'd like, if you can, it's maybe close your eyes and try to remember the very first impression you had, and if it corresponded in some way to what you imagined New York would be? Well, I don't have to close my eyes. I can just say my first impression was I got mugged almost within (laughs) 10 minutes of arriving. (laughs) So my impression was that of terror, but of survival. I fought very hard. The guy pulled out a switchblade. It was pretty dicey, but I had fought with my brother a lot growing up. But I something kicked in where I fought like the Dickens, and I actually scr- scratched his face. So he's definitely got scars from that, because later I looked and I had blood, skin, and whiskers under my nails. Now, they should have done a DNA test, but back then... They didn't care. <laughs> I um, That was scary and stupid on my part to, well, it's a long story. I survived, and it did match up with my impression of what New York was from seeing it on television, watching movies and TV. I remember there was a movie with Jack Lemmon and Sandy Dennis called The Out-of-Towners. And they are besieged with by muggers and all sorts of horrible misadventures. My other impression was watching Candid Camera, which came from New York. And my impression from watching that that show was that New Yorkers were people who drank a lot of coffee and played dirty tricks on each other. And when I got there, I found out that was exactly what it was. And, and what year are we talking about? I was there in 1975. I had gone on a theater trip with my college professor, um, I went to Denison University in Ohio, and they have a thing called January term, or right. had. So that January, I was a freshman, and they offered a theater trip to London and Prague. So I went, uh, it was three weeks, saw theater in both places, and it was an extremely exhilarating experience, particularly being in Prague, which was still communist in 1975. And we got to visit Joseph Svoboda's studio because Calvin Morgan, who was the professor, took us there. Was you remember his name? Scenic designer. He was wonderful. Yes, I do remember the teachers who were who were very 
have a had a real positive influence. I also remember the assholes. <laughs> I remember how, their names too. How but, do you how do you um, how do you see that moment in terms of what you became? In other words, um, you, you had this. You were mugged. You had this heady experience of theater, both in New York and in Prague. And then you decided to live in New York. And when you decided to live in New York, did you have an inkling of what you wanted to do? And I, I hasten to say that what you wanted to do are so many things. Um, right. Your, your life is capacious in so many different ways. I mean, you're a woman of extraordinary appetite. <laughs> Well, I was always interested in theater, and my mother signed me up for a million lessons and, and skating and ballet and piano and, and art, and I, so I was in puppetry even. So I took, I, I had a voracious appetite for all different forms of creativity and got many opportunities growing up to, to exercise those. And uh, the same in college, to a certain degree, although I always hung out with the renegades in high school and, and in uh, college, and we would end up doing our own stuff off campus. So I was always interested in the avant-garde starting in high school when I started to learn about who these people were. Who in particular? Well, actually, I think it really started with, um, well, it started with Soupy Sales, I grew up watching Soupy Sales, and he was from West Virginia, so he's the first celebrity I ever met because he came to visit one time. Uh, so he actually his TV show is very Dada. It was very wacky, and so were like Ernie Kovacs, and so was I. I'm pretty sure that I was watching your show of shows when my parents watched it in the '50s, and all the variety shows. And then you would be exposed to people through the Today Show. My parents were watching a lot of, the TV was always on. It was very, the 60s, you know, and the 70s. But the Smothers Brothers would have the doors on. Uh, Ed Sullivan would have strange people on there. I mean, Lenny Bruce was on Ed Sullivan. I don't think I was aware of him when I was a kid. But I was aware of people who were goofballs and off-center. And... Uh, Steve Allen had a TV show where would, he did would, really wacky things. Would and Frank Zappa have been on at that point, or that's a bit later? That was in high school. I was exposed to him, but he, he was scary. He right. looked scary. But right. Bowie was a real portal into, into an education where if he talked about anything in an interview like Edith Piaf, I would immediately go down to the library and check out records by Edith Piaf because I'd never heard of her. So I got an education about, I remember he talked about Evelyn Waugh. There were no Evelyn Waugh books in the library in Charleston, West Virginia. It's so interesting to hear you talk about all this because all, all of these experiences were portals for you. Uh, they they mm -hmm. opened up a world. Yes. They left a sediment and they created... Um, a future world in yes. which you, in which you yourself became so interested in so many different things. I, I think of David Bowie in particular, just having seen uh, the big show about him in Brooklyn a few right. years back. I mean, Anne, it's so so extraordinary just how 
how interested he was in the world. And it always reminds me of what my father used to tell me, which he said, you know, the more interests you have, the more interesting you are. Mm, but, you know, the inter- one of the interesting things I read um, as I sort of veer our conversation to, to an, another incredibly important moment in, in your life, which is Clump 57, you, you said Clump 57 was about using the detritus of our childhood as a kind of exorcism. Yes. And I'd like you to to maybe for our listeners to give them a sense of what this means and what Club 57 was, because my goodness, it, it, its fame continues. And um, I mean... A great deal because I kept pushing it in my bios. Right. <laughs> and I was calling it the, the now legendary Club 57 long before it was even legendary. Just if you tell people it's legendary they will long enough, it. they will believe it. They will believe it, it yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I... Um, you called it the shamanic black box. Yes. Well, that's... Every theater is a shamanic black box, right? So is a planetarium. And when I brought up that that planetarium that was at Sunrise, which was the name of this, this mansion that was turned into a children's Perfect museum. Perfect name. Yeah, because it faced Give the Sunrise. That was a magical place when the lights went down and and then you would just see the horizon light of sunset. And then slowly these lights came up of the constellations. I think that had a huge impact of what's, and that's what theater is. The lights dim, the curtains open, and there's an alternate reality that reflects, yeah. that reflects the human experience. So Club 57 was a black box, a theater that we could be creative in and use the, 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 the odds and ends that were crowding our brains, our collective consciousness, of all the stuff we grew up with, whether it was, it was movies, TV, uh, music. It was also like the residue of the Vietnam War, it was the fear and the anxiety that came with being certain that there was going to be a nuclear war with Russia. And then rock and roll and the fact that nobody had any money. There was no money back then, but there was also great trash out in the streets. We would drag it. For some reason, in the East Village, there were always refrigerator boxes. There were always huge boxes that refrigerators had come in and somebody had just put out in a dumpster or on the street, and we would drag that stuff into the club, use it as decor, have a one-night-only event, and really created our own version of Disneyland or our own TV network or Hollywood Dream Factory where we couldn't, we didn't have the money to do anything, so we just used imagination and resourcefulness. And kind of a bric-a-brac, you would, oh yeah, you, you, uh, kind of bricolage. You would find things. It and, was a, and, yes, and make the, them and make them fit however they felt, which in a, yeah. in a way, um, Anne, is a natural to starting out as a child cutting yes. out. Yes, exactly. So the cutting out naturally leads to refrigerators coming into the shamanic box. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So. So describe to me um, a, a week in... in uh, during... Well, every Tuesday was the Monster Movie Club. Which, which is what? 
which was I a, read about it, an evening of of monster movies that that was curated by Susan Hannaford and Tom Scully, and they were folks that I met the year before with a lot of other people who got involved with the club, and we were all involved in a show called the New Wave Vaudeville Show, and that's how we met Stanley Strakaki, who was the um, the fellow who had the smaller space in on St. Mark's Place, so. Um, Tom Scully saw it as an opportunity, uh, as a screening room. So he first programmed films on Saturday nights and then wanted to do this Monster Movie Club on Tuesdays. And the other nights, they, they had those slots, and the other nights I programmed. And with the, with the input of everybody who came into that club, it, it was a very much a collaborative experience. So some people would come to me and say, can I have an art show? And I'd say, sure, when do you want it? Boom, boom, boom. I was a, it was very much of a yes so it was environment a for very, me. Very nimble. For me, because I think in a lot of ways my dad saying, I didn't get any help and neither are you. I was the opposite. I was like, I'm going to help anybody who wants it, sometimes much to my detriment. But I liked being around people. I liked the community. I was very excited and rejuvenated by the the punk rock scene I'd come to New York to be to go to the first place I wanted to go to in 1977 when I came for a Thanksgiving weekend was CBGB's I was just so excited but I was also a little bummed out because all the bands I wanted to see had moved on right so mostly what we were left with were the dead boys (laughs) Which... So have, did you do you sometimes think you you arrived slightly at the wrong moment? Mm, well, maybe in that environment, maybe to a certain degree. I, but I still got to see the Ramones and Patti Smith perform there on at benefits, and I got to see the Heartbreakers. I saw Johnny hanging around the East Village. I would see Jerry Nolan, Ed. Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls just walking around. The other big influence was Mary Poppins. And in a lot of ways, I just thought, well, all these things should happen, right? Well, Mary Poppins is a little bit like the beginning of Disney, right? Oh, yes. It's a magic. It's It's magic. magic. And Patti Smith was magic. Yes, and artists make something out of nothing, and that's magic. And they're, they're, they're lessons, in a way, that were learned... Um, running Club Fifty Seven, you, 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 you know, if you if you were to speak now to a younger generation, you might say what you what you wrote, which is, go find your own empty storefront in some economically depressed city and just create stuff, maybe even experiment with the idea of not documenting it. Yes. I'd love you to, to, to talk a little bit about that, both, both the idea of just go do it and maybe just do it for the pleasure of doing it, not because it will be recorded for posterity. Yes. Well, we didn't have the option to record a lot of stuff. So there are some, there's so much theater that just disappeared into the ether that was never recorded. What about uh, an oral culture? Yeah, and what about all the the, the the dancing or the whatever bizarre things were going on in those caves? You know, my God, we'll never know. But it happened. When you when you look back at at Club Fifty Seven, and you you did that exhibition at at the Museum of Modern Art in in New York just two years ago, three years ago. 
February. was a, it opened on Halloween 2017, Jeez. which we thought which, was going to right. be the perfect thing. And it was the most insane opening they had ever had. They said it was the most packed, most successful, but it was also crazy. In what way? It was so, there were so many people, so many people couldn't get in. It was oh, like everybody who had lived through that period came out and dressed up and there were young people dressed up who hadn't lived through that period and it was it was like a pagan right it was there were great DJs Danny Johnson who'd been a DJ at Club 57 Johnny Dinell it was like every club night you had gone to in the 80s rolled into one and it was also kind of terrifying because there were people you didn't want to see <laughs> As well as people you were so overjoyed. People you were trying to avoid. Yes. There was, yeah. <laughs> and there were some people who were really abusing the open bar, seriously abusing it. It was it was overwhelming. It was really like the Big Bang. It was too much. It was why, too much. Why did the museum think it was important to commemorate Club 57? I think because uh, because of primarily you've got your famous people who were involved and and had a lot of um uh, creative output so keith herring did a lot of his first t um some of keith herring did some of his first art shows there jean-michel basquiat went there primarily when kai eric who was friends with with jean was running the place it was just such a hotbed of activity but the film curators were the ones who curated the show I was billed as guest curator, but they didn't really, I gave them names of everybody, everybody, and and then just said, you you guys, I can't, there's too many people, you do it. And But they were gonna do it anyway. I didn't really, I wanted more creative input. I didn't know what was gonna be in the final show until like two weeks before, and there was no way I could really, you know, an institution like that, you just let them do what they're going to do. I think their primary interest at the beginning was because there were so many films shown there, and they were the film curators. So they had a film program that was um, uh, parallel to the, the gallery. But once they saw all the ephemera and all the artwork and all the video and all the documentation that did exist, they saw there was enough for a show. And there was a book made of it? Yes, there's there a catalog. A book, yeah, which I'd love to see someday. Oh, I should have brought yeah, no, one. No, 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 but we'll have time. We'll have time. And uh, so you were mentioning Keith Herring, but also, I mean, we mentioned David Bowie a, a moment ago, but also I, Andy Warhol was part of that or not at all? Andy Warhol never came to that. He to didn't? No, not to my knowledge. I, no. He, I remember standing next to him, talking to him at Area, which was a little later. Well, 57 was very rinky-dink. It was the basement of a Polish church. church. It was a social club. It was set up as a social club. It was not a real business. They, Stanley did promote shows. He booked shows and promoted them, rock shows, at Irving Plaza. So there was that part. But... The small club that I was the manager of was kind of exactly what the paperwork from the church claimed it was. It was a social club for the youth of the Lower East Side. And you, you, you say it's a punk rock version of, jun of a junior league. That was the Ladies Auxiliary of the Lower East Side, which right. I started with a group of the, the gals who were from the club. 
and that was yeah that was for the the women to we threw our own events we did our own versions of what i'd grown up with we had our own prom and most of us hadn't even gone to the the real senior prom in high school I know that I was doing LSD with some friends at somebody's house right. because we were too rebellious. And But then I sort of secretly wished, ah, I kind of, you know, I missed out on the more traditional things that my parents did in high school and college because I was part of this, the more renegade rock and roll scene. When In college, when I discovered Richard Hell and I had Richard Hell and the Voidoids album, I played it for a friend of mine and she was so upset so insulted i think this is terrible the, the a blank generation it's, it's it's so negative and i'm like are you kidding me look at this guy he's hot <laughs> he's smart this music rocks fuck you you know <laughs> i couldn't wait to get to new york and get away from these 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 uh, small-minded people but when when i got there and found all these like-minded kindred spirits, we all decided we wanted to sort of, it was poking fun at traditional constructs, but also reinventing them for ourselves and using them for what their original intentions were. And that was basically community and dancing and having a good time. So we had our own debutante ball. We did a ladies' wrestling night that was so successful. We did two of them. What, what, we built what, a built what, a what did that entail? Built a wrestling ring in the club. <laughs> There's video of it, and then we all all the, us dressed up as we created different characters to fight each other. But it was all kind of mock fighting, and then these two gals. Lori Eastside, who, well, there's two Lori Eastsides. Lori Eastside, who was part of um, the dance, she danced in the Kid Creole and the Coconuts Review. She got wind of it, and her and her um, partner, who were in it, they had an exercise, jazzercise, rocker size, rocker size. I think that's what they called it. They came, and they took it seriously. And they came in, and they started to really fight us. And when Snookie and... Tish from Manic Panic got into the ring. They were really being hurt by these girls. And then Danny and I jumped back in the ring and started fighting. And we were dressed as Rastafarians, not very politically correct, but we were fighting them all. So it became a huge free-for-all. Snooky got her, no, Tish got her clothes ripped off. The whole thing was became insane. So the whole thing got more and more chaotic and actually more pagan. And it's it, it's fantastically documented in this video that, that Barry Shills shot and that we, we edited it together. And that you showed at the museum? Yes. Was it there? Yeah. It was there on a, it was in the gallery space on a... On a loop. On a loop, yeah. Love to see it. You know... Um, It strikes me that this moment is a is a very difficult moment in so many ways, uh, this moment of the pandemic, uh, because it's kept us away from what you long for so much. Um, at least you longed for it uh, as a young young woman uh, in in New York, and you longed for it as a young woman in West Virginia, longing for New York, which is community and. I'm particularly struck by the way in which Brian Eno 
talks about um, the, the difference between genius and seniors. And he, he, um, the way he talks about seniors, he says, the scene enables people, the individual, to be who they are, which reminded me a little bit about Irving Goffman, the presentation of self in everyday life, where he talks about staged authenticity. And Brian Eno says, seniors stands for the intelligence and the intuition of a whole cultural scene. It is a communal form of the concept of genius. And I'm wondering um, how this resonates for you in this moment, as you think of this moment where for the last two years we have perhaps had genius, but we haven't really had seniors. <laughs> and, it's, and now we are re-emerging slowly, perhaps, um, into well, the seniors world and you yes. spoke a little bit earlier about this notion that everything at Club 57 and in your other endeavors was always communal unlike your father who you spoke about you know where we we don't need this you opened your doors to any idea that that you felt would in some way generate another idea yes that's true uh, well first of all I think Brian Eno is right on and I think theater is, has always been a collaborative art form. Theater was originally a religious rite, so the whole point of it was, yeah, I think, to feel less alone and be strengthened by the group and not eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. I think in a lot of ways, I saw that happening when I was uh, on my junior year abroad in London, 1976-77. But I'd seen it, you know, through magazines and um, records happening in New York by following the the world of, uh, well, first the glam rock world of Max's Kansas City, but then the bands like Television, Richard Hell, Patti Smith, the Ramones, that I would look at from afar. But there was a group of people who had a sensibility that was different in some ways, but very much the same. It was a product of the counterculture, which was another form of the seniors, you know, that I watched on television as the um, Vietnam War protests amped up. And I went to my first one when I was probably about 13. There was one uh, that was, a, there was a march that I went with my friend Tina Lowe. We were the, f we, we hooked up together in junior high school and decided we want to try some stuff. Stuff was the word for marijuana. So she and I were the first, that's kind of where I I found her. We were both kind of, she was totally into James Taylor, and uh, she would go to the Fiddler's Convention in Fairfax, Virginia, and then, but I was totally into Elton John because I liked piano-based rock, and then it all kind of morphed into, you know, that was a whole scene. So we went to this Vietnam protest, and we marched from, point A to point B. Point B was the federal building, and there was a guy from who was a little bit older. He had long hair. He was really cute. He was 15, I think. He was like, ooh, he's so old. And he, he shimmied up the flagpole and pulled down the American flag. And I remember there was some kind of like... Ugh tussle with that and I thought this is so <gasps> this is so exciting but it's scary and but it's like once the pandemic hit it was great because not only did I not have to audition or run around 
doing productions. Nobody did. So I didn't have the fear of missing out. So I really welcomed stopping. This hiatus. Yes, and just doing nothing. And But I can't do nothing. You know. No, and so, so what did you? What, well, I've been. What did you I make had been doing. I had been doing these Facebook videos with the dolls for a while, just for my own entertainment. And, for fun. Yeah, and I told my friend Adam Dugas, who I've collaborated with on live shows, and he was um, part of a group. In um, he's a performer and a filmmaker in his own right. I said, why don't we do our own YouTube thing? I'll send you the video. He can edit it and put on the little sparkles that we need, and and we'll call it "What the what Fuck, fuck 2020. 2020." And so I made my own. Um, Love it, banner. Well, it's yeah. uh, the titles. Right. And actually, I sold one of the episode titles at an art show Sarah Gavlak had called "Nasty Women." There were all these women artists, and a collector from Miami bought it. And, and, what, and why, so I ended up just improvising um, every week. Well, it wasn't every week, but we did like a diary form. So it was it was a reflection of our anxieties and experiences during the pandemic, as they, reflected. And they're in the available dorm. because I've seen some. Yes, of they're them. all they're on. They're all, the, they're all on, on Facebook. You can see them. They're on the YouTube channel. On the YouTube channel. Yes. I want to end with a question that Alejandro Cohen had had for you. Um, he he simply would like to. To, to know how you consider yourself. So he says, do you consider yourself an outsider or insider in the art world? Oh, outsider. But I'd like to get more inside. I'd like to sell some more of these pieces because it's hard to keep self-financing records uh, specifically. I just, I want to keep creating and um, it would be nice to rob Peter to pay Paul, you know? I, I, it's too hard to do the TV shows. I'm getting wary of it. And I'm on one that's coming out, my episode's coming out real soon. But I'm not supposed to talk about it, so I don't know what point I talk about it. Because then I don't talk about things, and then it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I talked about it or didn't talk about it. They act like the stuff is, you know, you're, you're hiding you know, nuclear secrets. and it's, but, but I have a... a I'll just say this. I played my first grandmother role, and I had a really fun time doing it. And they were, it was a great cast, and it's a cast of primarily young people. And when will it come out? I'm already giving so many clues, but it doesn't matter. It's already, uh, they're releasing the next batch of episodes. So 2022. No, uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. How wonderful. Yeah, so I... How wonderful. So I had a really good experience... Before we go, I just want to show you a couple of other things. Please do. Guys, I made these stash bags. I was I want because I have this um, this art form called surrealism, and I did a live show back in West Virginia years ago about it. So I've sort of worked with concepts of patchwork, and uh, wanted to make I love these. That. So I have all these things that are based on. Oh, and like my grandmother, I didn't throw anything away. So all the little pieces of of um, thread and, uh, they, uh, and leftover yeah. things, and to me, this is like the mandala. This is this is God, right there. And
and some of them are flat out art pieces some of them are i made this bag for wine and um i'll just show you one there's so much stuff here i'll i'll this will all be on display December 5th at Winslow Garage, where we're going to launch a catalog zine for an art show I did in 2019, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So my dad's... Your dad is commemorated he's, there. He's commemorated it's in so, many ways. So we have, we, have, um, we have the dolls with your grandmother, the, the moon landing, and then the, sev- the 75th, the... the Bowie event is is happening in in January, I think. Here's a here's a Bowie bag. What is the the Bowie event in January? Is January eighth, his seventy. What would have been his seventy fifth birthday? This is the Big Bang. How fantastic! So this is what I did while I was um, at home. At home, I didn't want to. I can't just twiddle my thumbs. I call this piece. David Bowie doesn't want your stupid ideas he has plenty of his own which references a Bongwater song called David Bowie Wants Ideas which was a dream I had after working with David and I'll just show you oh this is called Space Tit and I have I got labels with my name on them I love it and then we just found wire this is stuff from Joshua Tree so I love I love the outsider art of Noah Purifoy whose art installation, uh, well, it's a whole art park, is not far from where we live in Joshua Tree. And, and it's, it's and very, here, very much, you were talking about surrealism, it's very much uh, objet trouvé, found objects. Yeah, this is a dream catcher. So these are objects that I found in Joshua Tree. And we you f- make use of them. Yeah. A skull, which makes you think of uh, so Jojo O'Keefe. We grab... Um, yeah. Owl pellets. We also, whenever we go to Joshua Tree, we stop for a pit stop at the call oh, the Hillside Cemetery. It's in Redlands. It's a really old-fashioned cemetery. It's beautiful, and um, there's always owl pellets there because the owls, you know, regurgitate their prey. And then I, you, you soak them and get all these great bones out of them. That was just some glass I found. You find these little bits and bits and pieces that's actually something i i bought a charm but i just this is like stuff my this is very much like something my grandmother might have Have done if she was me (laughs) (laughs) and what a pleasure it's been talking to you to support this show and dublab's progressive programming go to dublab.com slash support 